If you've been listening to our podcast for a while, you know that we lean heavily into heart-led action to create change. So today, we're really excited to interview someone who's an expert on where that heart-led action comes from. Terry Givens is a woman of many talents, but one of them is author, and we're talking to her about her book, Radical Empathy, which provides a framework as to how we reach radical empathy for ourselves and where radical empathy can be used to make change. And spoiler alert, it's pretty much everywhere. We're also super excited to announce that she is a fantastic forward writer who wrote the forward for our forthcoming book, Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Racism, which is now available for pre-order. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. We're your biracial hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Terry, would you please introduce yourself for our audience? Yes, I am Terry Givens, and I am the author of Radical Empathy, Finding a Path to Bridging Racial Divides, and I am a woman of many talents. I'm a professor of political science. I'm the CEO and founder of Brighter Higher Ed, which is transitioning to brighter professional development because we're doing lots of workshops for corporations and universities on our Radical Empathy model. And I am a mother, an athlete. I do lots of work in the nonprofit sector. And that's just uh, scratching the surface of all the things that I do. (laughs) I can't wait to dive into many of those identities. We first heard about Radical Empathy when our publicist suggested you as a forward author for our upcoming book. And, you know, I remember reading basically you know, starting the first chapter of your book and immediately knew that this was going to be an amazing fit. And so I'd like to start at the beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about what led you to write this book? Absolutely. And, you know, the book opens with a scene of my family gathering together and my grandfather is there and he's a grandfather with my nieces. And it's just very, I have very fond memories of this gathering, but it was the last gathering of the family with my father. And a few weeks later, he passed away suddenly from a heart attack. So I'm a researcher and that prompted me to start looking into, well, what happened? I mean, why didn't we have any warning signs, you know? you know, what was going on with him. And, you know, I wish I had done, you know, the research before, but, you know, I learned that just being an African-American male puts you at high risk for a heart attack and you're more likely to die from a heart attack. And that was just stunning to me. I mean, obviously I knew there's racism in the world, but, you know, this was 2001. I would say at that time, I've thought a lot about it. At that time, I was so much more hopeful about, you know, the future of race relations and where the country was heading, even though, you know, politically things were still, you know, a little rough. We'd just gotten through a a contentious election. But, you know, I had no idea that that I would be kind of going on this odyssey over the next 20 years, pretty much, you know, it'll be 20 years on June 13th that my, my father passed away. And so that was just the beginning. But over the next few years, just these different things kept hitting me. And one of the other really clear memories I have is I was driving through Berkeley. I don't know why I remember driving through Berkeley, but I was listening to NPR and I heard this story about how regardless of class, regardless of education, Black women are more likely to have poor maternal health outcomes and poor fetal health outcomes. And I was just like, how is this possible? You know, this was just like, you know, five years ago. How is it possible that we Black women are still regardless of education and wealth, are still more likely to have poor outcomes when it comes to having children. 
And so I think that's really when I would start doing the writing of this book and thinking through all the family stories. I was like, well, you know, as a researcher, I can provide kind of the data and facts. But I stumbled upon radical empathy because it's like, wait, we need to take a step back and understand that every single one of us is has to deal with this world of white supremacy, the sea of white supremacy, I call it, because every single one of us is touched by structural racism, regardless of race, ethnicity, background. We are all swimming in the sea. And so it doesn't you can't escape it. And that was my real awakening. I appreciate that. We're just about to release our summer series on the power of action. And some people might think it's a little odd to be talking about empathy when it comes to action, but your book starts with a really clear definition of the six steps to radical empathy. Can you take us through those steps, how that ties into action, and also how you find space to create that kind of empathy? Absolutely, because radical empathy is all about action. Because that's the other thing I realize is, is that we can have empathy all, you know, so empathy is basically, you know, being able to put yourself in somebody's shoes. But that's where it stops, right? It's like, what do you do then? So the six steps to radical empathy, first of all, are willingness to be vulnerable. Because the problem is too many of us, and you know, myself included, it took a real journey for me to be vulnerable and look inside and try to really understand what had gone on in my life that you know, led me to where I am today. And the second step is being grounded in who you are. That was such an incredibly important you know, component for me because you know, I, I talk in the book about you know, my 20s were my years of cognitive dissonance. And I really had to understand who I am and be comfortable with who I am. Because then the next stage is your willingness to be open to the experiences of others. And that is so critical because, you know, once you are vulnerable and really understand yourself, then you can be open to the broader experiences of other people around you. Because one of the things, you know, I talk about this in chapter on love and marriage is, you know, I feel like I couldn't really love somebody else, including my husband, until I learned to love myself. And so by loving myself, I felt that I was worthy of his love and being able to really under, you know, be open to understanding who he is, his family, you know, and beyond. And then the next step is practicing empathy. You know, empathy is not something that, you know, you just magically comes to you. So we have to practice it. And then the next step is taking action. Like you're saying, you know, we need people to be taking action. And then the last step is creating change and building trust. Because taking action doesn't mean you're creating change, you know, so we have to make sure those actions are, at, you know, it's funny because I've seen so many articles one year after George Floyd that are like, okay, well, everybody was, you know, a year ago was for Black Lives Matter and out protesting and now they're not and they're not out protesting. And it's like, yeah, the protests, you know, that's taking action, but did it create change? And clearly we have a lot of long way to go to actually create change. And a huge part of that is building trust. So, you know, the Black community is frustrated, you know, we're tired of protests happening and then nothing you know, things have happened. Don't get me wrong, but not enough. So that's why I really emphasize those last two steps of not just taking action, but actually creating change. It reminds me what you just said about in a section in our book, we talk about how we need to step up and interrupt patterns of, you know, the racist jokes or the whatever that are happening. But we give people permission to disengage if that conversation is just going to turn into a negative spiral, if the person doesn't want to hear the history, if they're not. Because I think of what you just said, it's not going to lead to change anyway. And it's going to try to make us feel good that we tried to do it, but it's not actually going to be received by that person. Do you think that that makes sense in the context of what you were talking about? 
that like there are times where you don't need to just hit your head against a brick wall and you can use that energy to do something that might actually create change? Exactly. It comes back to this idea of prioritizing, right? I mean, it's one thing for me to go and talk to my racist neighbor and, you know, who's 70 some years old and say, hey, you got to stop being a racist. (laughs) I mean, that's not going to create change. It's another thing for me to go and have, you know, literally having my second meeting with the new police chief in Menlo Park to talk about racial profiling and what, you know, and I want to support him as the new police chief because he's very open to community engagement. You know, he's showing it by meeting with me. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, I'm not saying everybody has to go out and do that, but we need to find ways that are actually going to influence. And, you know, the interesting there is that interpersonal connection that is helping to create the change. And that's why I say we have to start with ourselves, right? And I can't tell you how many times, you know, I've been in so many discussions lately where people, what can I do about, you know, police violence? Go and talk to the police, Go and talk to your city council. You know, I would prefer instead of all these mass protests in the streets, go and sit in your city council chambers and, you know, bring on mass people. Go sit in those city council chambers and tell them what you want. You know, tell them that you want police to stop racially profiling. Tell them that you want to hire police who aren't going to have a hair trigger with their guns. I mean, there's all these things you can do, but it has to be, you know, some of this absolutely has to be done at the local level, which is why, you know, when my neighbors put out their Black Lives Matter signs, I'm like, okay, that's great. But what are you really doing about creating change? It's not just about putting a sign in your front yard. It's about actually going and talking to those local officials and and demanding that they create the change. And if they don't, then vote them out. I love this because this was like a whole preview for our summer series right there in a (laughs) nutshell, but that's so true, right? And I think the power, we largely gloss over at times the power of the interpersonal, right? And the power of the personal narrative and being able to have that human to human interaction, right? And discussion rather than sort of a grand gesture that may not result in anything. And Terry, you talked about a little bit um, as you were talking about the why behind your book, you know, your own history, your own personal narrative and how that, you know, combined with the data really informed your book as a whole. And so I'm curious to hear a little bit more about how your personal story and and your history and in particular race really contributed to this book and your analysis. Right. So, you know, I grew up in Spokane, Washington, which is in Eastern Washington, and my father was in the military. And one of my favorite pictures in the book is a picture of my dad, in 1962, that's a couple of years before I was born, NCO school. And he's the only black guy in the, you know, there's like 30 men and he's the only black guy. It's like, I had fun posting that picture and saying, hey, guess which one is my dad? <laughs> but, you know, it's funny, I didn't discover that picture until a few years ago when we were going through some of my dad's things. And, you know, what struck me is, oh my God, you know, I have so much more empathy for my dad now because I know what that feels like to be the only black person, you know, in a room or in a classroom or, and so is a great way to connect with him. But also in terms of, you know, kind of connecting to the book and my, my family history, I think that one of the things I wanted to accomplish through that is to let people know there's a variety of Black experiences. And, you know, there's no one way to be Black, right? And so my parents chose to raise us in Spokane, Washington. I was actually born there, but I'm the youngest of seven. And so my dad was still in the military when we we settled there. 
And he retired from the military and went on to have a career. My mom's from Louisiana and, you know, she was raised Catholic. I have an aunt who's a, a nun. You know, I have two great aunts and who is a nun and a great aunt, uncle who was a priest, you know, so it's very, very Catholic family. That's why we had their seven children because my, my mom, you know, back then birth control was not a thing. But anyway, the importance of that is, is connecting race in a way that people can understand that this is so deep, right? You can have a family that is, you know, we, you know, my parents basically decided to have us grow up in Spokane because it was, you know, they knew that, I mean, I don't know that they consciously thought about this, but it's obvious to me that, you know, they could see that us growing up in a place like Spokane, where we had to be a part of, you know, the broader white society, we didn't really interact much with people, other Black people in Spokane who you know, went to the Black church and, and, you know, Baptist church and, you know, and lived in other parts of town. And so, you know, even though I did, you know, I have friends, Black friends from a few from those times, you know, it was really different, I think, than the, I know it was different than the experience my cousins had growing up in Los Angeles and so on. So it's really trying to show people that there's a broad array of Black experiences in this country and that my experience still is instructive about the impact of race, even though I've been extremely successful in my career. You know, I have a PhD, I have a good job, you know, I have a wonderful home and family. But you know, it's so funny. You'll hear this all the time from people, even famous actors. And so I can walk out this door and still have to worry about, you know, what are my neighbors or people driving through going to think about seeing a black woman in this neighborhood? You know, how are people going to deal with me when I walk into a store? You know, all these different things that, uh, you know, are this added burden that I still have to carry as a black woman in this country. And, you know, knowing that I have some opportunities have not been afforded to me despite my success because I'm black. I love how you describe in your book that part of your willingness to be vulnerable of like, this is how you grew up, but then you had to go through an experience where you had to understand where you then fit in with the black community and how you related to your identity and how people perceive you. And so I really appreciated you sharing all of that in your book when you are talking about you know, this idea of, of radical empathy, but in it, you also talk about so many different systems, right? There's marriage. I mean, there's so many different sections. How did you pick the systems that you did to research and dive into in the book? Well, it came partly from my, you know, so obviously the first one, I almost wrote a whole book just on health and mental health and, and so on. But you know, I started there because just that was so impactful you know, the just health disparities was so impactful in my family, you know, having lost several people to cancer and diabetes and heart disease. And, you know, I have to be very careful and keep close eye on things like my cholesterol and so on because of the heart disease in my family. One of the reasons is I wanted to make sure I had a strong personal connection to the topics that I pulled in. So, you know, I wanted to tell my the story. Actually, my publisher made me cut back on the story of how my husband and I met because I want, like, well, it's great that you want to have all this detail, but I don't think the audience needs it. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> fine, damn it. <laughs> I wanted to tell the full story, but anyway, so I, I had to cut back on that part. You know, it's what was most meaningful to me, right? And so talking about health and being an athlete, you know, talking about, you know, things like segregation and housing and, you know, how in my own family was, you know, when we bought our house in Spokane, 
you know, some guy went around trying to get somebody to buy the house out from under us, you know, because they didn't. But luckily, the other neighbors, you know, were like, no way, dude. But yeah, so I chose those different topics based because I wanted to be able to inform them with my own personal or familial experience. I didn't want to just jump in and say, talk about something that I had no personal experience with. So I want to go back to something that you mentioned, because you said that you could write a whole book about, or you had thought about writing a book about health, right? And one of the things when you and I had the opportunity to chat the very first time, we realized that we had something in common, which was kind of these invisible health issues or, or challenges that marked us in various ways, but weren't necessarily something that the average person would even notice about us or consider about us. And, you know, I think about my own journey through this, and I'm curious to hear, you know, how you think having something like that or addressing something like that or dealing with something like that fits into empathy. I and mean, how has that influenced your view of empathy? Well, you know, it's funny. I think we started talking about the fact that you know, when you have an injury, so like I had to have first surgery a few years ago because I actually I was born with uh, extra bone in my foot, which I didn't know until a few years ago. And then my other issue is I've had back issues for my, most of my life, actually, even though I was an athlete and ran track. You know, I just assumed back when I was running track, I must have injured my back somehow. And it turns out, again, I found out that when I finally did an MRI in my 50s, that is something I was born with. I have a fused L5S1. And, you know, I think part of it is the having empathy for yourself part, because I just kind of took for granted that I would just be in pain all the time. <laughs> and, you know, I, especially in my mid to late twenties is when the back stuff really just was, I mean, I woke up one morning and couldn't stand up. And so before that, you know, when I was running track, I would see the trainers and they would do adjustments and all that. But, you know, after when you're in your twenties, you don't think about the fact that you might need regular care for it, or even they have something that's a chronic thing. And the funny thing is I never really thought about it that much, but, you know, I went through, I can't tell you how many different types of treatments I went through for my back. I mean, I've seen, you know, acupuncture, actually the one thing that helped the most was Pilates. Cause I realized I needed a strong core. I mean, all these different things, but you know, the, I realized, and I still have a hard time having empathy for myself over this because you know, these injuries are there and they cause, you know, like I said, I'm in pain every day of my life and one way or another, whether it's my foot or my back. And, but I think it's, you know, by talking about it, you know, it's, I think we're really reticent to talk about these things. And, you know, I think another thing we discussed was also the fact that, you know, we both had miscarriages and, you know, until I had a miscarriage, it was something that I had no idea was so common and, you know, so I've started being more open about the fact that I had a miscarriage, you know, that I have chronic pain and because it's important for people to understand if I'm crabby, it's not necessarily because I'm upset with you. It's because I happen to be in pain that day. And I have to be, you know, I see a chiropractor every two weeks, which has, you know, and I have, you know, have a special bed, I, all these things I do. And, you know, actually I'm getting ready to see the foot doctor again to figure out if I need to change my orthotics or something. So, but, you know, the empathy component is we don't, there's things that people have that are hidden and it's not just physical, it's often emotional and it can be a mental health issue. And, you know, it's almost like we want to separate the person from their body, <laughs> You know, it's like, we don't, it's like, oh yeah, you have back issues, whatever, yeah, whatever. But, you know, it's for me, it's an integral component of my day-to-day -day living. And so I guess my main message there is that we always just see the, you know, a tiny bit of a person 
and we don't see the whole picture. And what that's helped me to realize is that I just can't take for granted that somebody I'm talking, you know, doesn't have something going on. You know, I'm seeing a very superficial layer. And this is something we try to talk about. And so, you know, part of it is giving myself grace for understanding that, no, I can't just go, 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 go all the time, even though I want to. I have to take a step back. You know, I'm not going to be able to run that 5K. (laughs) Oh, I'm going to have to walk it. You know, there's so much wrapped up in our physical well-being and, you know, how we deal with pain, how we deal with all these different things that we have to give ourselves grace and empathy in order to understand that it's like that self-care, but also self-esteem component. So. I really appreciate that because I think I'm built quite sensitively, just it's how my biology and my mind works. And I have like food sensitivities and I need to get, you know, solid sleep or else it, I mean, a lot of people need sleep, right? But I like, I need certain things in order to maintain a healthier baseline. For a long time, I beat myself up because I have the capacity in my mind to go compete with my friends who are able to do all this stuff on four hours of sleep or who can just eat whatever they want. Like all of these things I was always beating myself up for being like, why aren't you tough enough? And I felt like that what you just said about having empathy for ourselves, it really helps us break down that idea of comparing ourselves to some other random standard that we have set as some aspirational goal, right? That's society telling us that we need to do X, Y, Z and that I'm not good enough. But if we start, you know, your first step of empathy is like, look inward, look at yourself of radical empathy, right? And do you have any tips for like the first step of when you realize we are all built so differently and we need to understand ourselves? Do you have any suggestions for how we almost like forgive ourselves in some ways it feels like to for being who we are and being built the way that we are? You know, it's just the fact that you take that step back. And I guess one thing that I've tried to do is, you know, when I'm, you know, I, and I still kind of beat myself up because I want to go back to what I was doing, you know, 10 years ago and exercising and all that. And it's really important. So one of the things I try to emphasize is that this process of radical empathy is circular. So you see, you guys can, who are listening can't see, but I have a logo for radical empathy that has you know six dots, but it's circular. And so the most important thing you can do is remember that it's a continuous process. It's not, I get from point one to point six and then I'm done. And so I guess what the thing that I do on a regular basis is just to take it that step back and be in the moment. You know, I did that this morning at one point and, you know, I just have to be present in the moment right now and experience this particular moment and realize that, you know, right now, you know, I'm not in pain, but, you know, I might be later in the day. I will be later in the day and just appreciate, it's kind of that combination of appreciation and joy. And so the appreciation component is, you know, yes, I have all these things and I acknowledge them, but I'm not going to let them weigh me down. And then I'm going to find a way sometime during this day to appreciate a moment of joy. And I was reminded of that this week when I was listening to a talk and the speaker was talking about how we need that, especially for Black people these days, we need that Black joy. And so my comment wasn't, and Sasha, we can follow up on this later, but my Black joy is going out for brunch. So if you want to take me out for brunch, that would, that would be really, that would help my Black joy, but. Done. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But it's true. So, I mean, it's connecting that kind of, you know, negative thing to something 
for more positive. So it's okay. I'm giving myself grace because, you know, my back is bothering me and, you know, I know other people can't see it, but, you know, it's, you know, and you don't want to always go around saying, oh God, you know, my back hurts. But on the other hand, you do want to communicate. You do want to let people know, you know, I'm having a bad back day or, you know, I can't go for that walk today because my foot is bothering me or, you know, there's so many different ways to approach it. And I think it's important that each individual you know, kind of has that, you know, moment of being present and focusing on yourself, right? We spend, especially if you're a mother and have children, we spend all our time focused outwardly. And it's that internal focus, that spending time focus. And that I can tell you my one mantra I learned from watching my older sisters and siblings raise their kids is if I don't take care of myself first, I can't take care of anybody else. So those are my tips. (laughs) I like that because I always hear, and sometimes even in the back of my head, I have that voice that says, you don't deserve to take this time for yourself. Mm -hmm. But if we can lean into what you just said, you know, it's true, right? We can't pour from an empty cup. I mean, there's so many phrases around that, but we do need to take care of ourselves in order to be able to give our best to those we love. But the other side of that is, as my boys are now soon to be 18 and 21, is I'm a role model for them, right? And it's important that they, you know, see that I'm taking care of myself. You know, it's so funny because I know people, oh, you got to you let your husband and, and kids take, you know, when I set out dinner, they need to take their food first. Oh, I'm taking my food first. I made the food. <laughs> you know? I'm out there working in the garden, growing the food, <laughs> which I, I enjoy. I don't, so it's not a burden, but, you know, it's like, hey, I made a salad. I'm going to eat it. <laughs> And so, you know, it is, you know, putting yourself first. I'm going to be the first to put food on my plate. You know, I'm going to go do something for myself and, and not necessarily always just do for my kids. So, yes. I love that. It's so simple, right? And yet it's something that I think, I mean, I struggle with. And I know that it's hard to sometimes mentally get there. But yeah. Well, the visualization is you're on the airplane and they always tell you to put your mask on before you put your child's mask on. That's the one I, the visualization I always come back to. So it's like, yeah, I'm going to fill up my plate and then I'll deal with the kids. And I've used that airplane example so much, but I think I'm going to use a different one only because to me, that's like an emergency hits, then I'll take care of myself first. And I would love to get to a point where I'm not like, I am going to collapse of exhaustion tomorrow. So tonight I need to go to bed early. Like I want to have that as part of a rich living experience before I hit emergency mode, like panic, like help mommy is done. And I want to do that. So, so I like that though, as a general idea of prioritizing it more as a regular part of life. Very important. Is there anything else that we didn't ask that you want to talk about? You know, well, you know, the one thing we haven't talked about is, is my life as an athlete. Yes. <laughs> yes. Let's talk about it. I ran track at Stanford and I, you know, even into my forties, I was a big runner and not track and field, just kind of recreationally. I'd go out and, you know, if you live in Austin, Texas and you're any kind of athlete, the funny thing to me is that being in Austin, Texas, because there's so many amazing athletes, you know, even though I was pretty fast and like the 5k and the 10k and stuff for my age group, especially, you know, I would still, and for some reason, women in my age group, it's like, we were that first wave of title nine are just these, you know, amazing athletes. And so I I would, I remember this a couple of times I would run a 5k and you know, be a relatively small one, but like I have this friend who's like five years younger than me and, you know, I, we'd run and I just barely beat her. So she got in the top three of her age group, but I was like 
fourth in my age group, even though I'm five years older than her, because there's so many amazing women in my age group. And, you know, they all live in Austin. <laughs> so, <laughs> so much to my chagrin, even though I was pretty good at running back then, you know, and now I, I had foot surgery um, four and a half years ago, this extra bone in my foot. And so I'm, you know, like I said, walking is my friend now, but, you know, it was a really interesting time in my forties when I was living in Austin and I am sitting here looking at my first marathon medal and stuff. And it was really great. And I always dreamed of being that woman who'd be in her seventies, still running marathons, but here I am in my fifties and I can, you know, running is not going to be my thing anymore, but you know, it's just something I got to get used to. But yeah, I'm still an athlete. I still exercise and work out, although I got to get more into it. But I, I'm taking a new faculty position at McGill University in Montreal, and they have Mount Royal or Montreal. Is, is, That's where John went. Oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm looking forward to climbing the mountain on a regular basis. I'm actually very excited about that. Do you want to just give us a quick, like an intro, like where we find you and about your book one more time? Sure. Yeah. So my book is Radical Empathy, Finding a Path to Bridging Racial Divides. It's available everywhere, although I recommend to so go to Bristol University Press and just type in Radical Empathy. Or, and I have a, also my website, terrygivens.com and slash Radical Empathy. You can find me there. And actually, if you Google me, T-E-R-R-I-G-I-V-E-N-S, there's not very many Terry Givenses out there. And you'll find me everywhere on this podcast and And I've been doing a lot of uh, speeches and webinars and talks. So yeah, check it out. Awesome. Love what you're hearing? Follow us at the Dear White Women podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts to get our fresh new insights on how you can help dismantle systemic racism one conversation at a time every Wednesday. Do you love learning via visuals? Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Dear White Women podcast and at Twitter at DWW podcast. And do you want us to keep making good work? support our Patreon, and keep an eye out for opportunities to use our webinars, DEI consulting work, and more if you want us to help bring change into your own spaces.